Let's turn to the Bible, to the book of Acts. We're continuing our study in this phenomenal book written by Luke, Dr. Luke, and I've entitled the message this morning, From Slavery to Salvation. And I'd like to read the, uh, the text first, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 16, through the end of the chapter, and then we'll consider its application to our life this morning. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market uh, to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. You can leave. Go in peace. 
But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask as we study it, God, that you might magnify your great and powerful and glorious and matchless name. And I pray that as we study and as we review and consider the things that you've done in the past, God, that you would help us to apply it to the things that we're living in in the present. And God, that you would magnify your great name and do just as many miraculous and wonderful and astonishing things today as we are now studying that you did in Acts chapter 16. God, we want to be people that praise you. We want to be people that honor you. We want to be people that advance your kingdom and carry out your will. And so, Father, we're here this morning saying, please, Lord, change us. God, let your word go out and accomplish the purpose for which you're sending it this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. In our last study in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, we were informed that as Paul was ministering with the other disciples in a city of Troas in Asia Minor, that a man in a vision came to Paul. And so Paul had this vision, and in this vision, this man came to him and said, Paul, come and help us in Macedonia. Come to Macedonia. And so we remember that Paul immediately responded to this vision that was from God. And he and Luke and Silas and Timothy began this journey. You'll remember from our study that that they went one one direction and another direction and the Holy Spirit forbid them from doing that until they went in the direction of Troas and God gave them leave to go in that direction to follow this this call to Macedonia, which is modern-day Europe. And so we find in the text that uh, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy traveled across the Aegean Sea from Troas to the island of Samothrace and then on to Philippi, which was about 10 miles inland from Neapolis. And uh, we're told in the text that Philippi was a leading city. It was a Roman colony and a very important place in in all of Europe for Rome. Um, It happened to be on the road uh, to Asia uh, from Rome. And so it was in one of the real key uh, commercial spots. It was a key industrial area, a very uh, powerful city in Rome at that time. And it also was going to now become a central point for spiritual growth and for the expansion of the kingdom of God in Europe. And so you'll remember in our last study, Paul and these brothers were going to simply retrace their steps from their first missionary journey. But because of this vision that just completely blew away their expectations, because now they're not just retracing their steps, but now they're opening a whole new frontier into Europe. And and friends, this is so important because Europe became the place where the gospel infiltrated all of Rome and now has influenced Western culture and the the Americas to to a large degree were Christianized because of this effort, this outreach, this vision from this man of Macedonia that Paul and the disciples responded to and obeyed. And it tells us that in verse 13 that Paul and these disciples went down to the river uh, looking for a place of prayer on the Sabbath and we're thinking, you know, why are they going to a river? 
If you've been with us during our study, you know that every time Paul went on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue every single time. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and preached the word there. And oftentimes he was kicked out, but he always started at that point of reference with the synagogue, with the people who were already seeking God. But what's interesting in Jewish law is that you could not have a synagogue in any city, any locale, uh, if you didn't have at least 10 uh, committed Jewish men to that synagogue. And so what this tells us is that there weren't 10 uh, practicing Jews in Philippi. It was predominantly Gentile. So Jewish law allowed the Jews in such circumstances to worship by a river, by a place that was just, you know, it's like, okay, go to the beach. If you don't have a church, then go. If it was here on Kauai, if we didn't have enough people to, to, to uh, be considered a church, God would say, go to the beach. I want you to worship by the river. I want you to enjoy my creation while you're worshiping. And so that's what these, these Jews did. But we find that Paul and Silas and Timothy and, uh, and Luke went down to this river expecting to find some Jews there, but they didn't find any Jews. What they found was a whole group of women who were worshiping there. And they were Gentiles. They're called God-fearers. These are people that were very much like Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts, who was just a passionate worshiper of God, but he wasn't Jewish. So in practice, he was living a Jewish life honoring God, serving God, ministering to God, advancing the purposes of God, but he himself was not a Jew. And so Paul and these brothers go down to, this, uh, to the bank of this river on the Sabbath uh, to this place of prayer. And there they find this group of women who were, who were gathered there. And one of these women is identified for us, and her name is Lydia. We're told that she was a dealer in purple from the uh, town of Thyatira. Now, this purple dye that they had that was extracted from a root that I'm not familiar with, but it's called the matter root, M-A-D-D-E-R, the matter root. And from that matter root, they would extract this precious purple dye that was extremely expensive and sought after. And Lydia was a dealer. She was in the textile industry and probably was responsible for moving clothing and, and uh, linens and towels and sheets and you know, whatever else she can imagine that would be dyed with this expensive dye. And so she was a, a successful businesswoman uh, who was probably quite wealthy. We also know from, uh, from the text in, her, uh, in the passage here that, um, that she was also inviting all the disciples to her house. So she probably was quite wealthy as well. And we find that in verse 14 that as Paul and the disciples were teaching down by this river where these Gentile women were gathered to worship God, it says the Lord opened Lydia's heart to the message that Paul was speaking. He just opened her heart. In the, in the Greek, it means to thoroughly open. It's like there was nothing closed. It, was like there, it wasn't just like a crack in the door that Paul was working with. God completely opened this woman's heart to the message of Jesus Christ. You know, when I read that, I was thinking about 2 Corinthians 4.4, where the Bible says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Do you know that's the condition of every unbeliever before they come to the kingdom of God, before they, before they receive Christ? The Bible says that they're blinded by Satan. They can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes I remember as a young believer, I would be like, 
you know, what am I not saying right here, you know? I mean, I'm working on this guy. I remember a friend of mine in high school, and I, I really, he was my first uh, evangelistic project, and he was a project for me. I just treated him that way, too. I was, just, I was so desperate for him to come to Christ. You know, I didn't know anything about, you know, being measured and gentle and all that. I was just like, you got to get saved. You're a sinner, you know? We've, we've both been sinning all this time. You know, all the stuff that we've done and all the parties we've been to and all the things that we've done that we knew that were wrong before God, you know, and uh, just this friend of mine that we used to hang out and surf and just party and everything else. And, um, and I was just so determined that this guy came to Christ. And I thought, because he didn't come to Christ, it must have been something about my, my evangelistic abilities. You know, I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought there must be some inadequacy. I need, need to go to more conferences or something on evangelism. I need to get trained until I realized that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. So just as Jesus went around performing miraculous signs and opening physically blind eyes, the only way a man or woman can come into the kingdom is if their spiritual eyes are opened and God removes the scales away. And that's basically what Jesus said in John 6, when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so God opened Lydia's heart and the Bible tells us that she received Christ. And, and here's the wonderful thing, ladies, that I find so encouraging for you is that here again, we have a new frontier being opened not by a man or being opened by some religious leader or by a Pharisee or a scribe or a teacher of the law, but opened by a Gentile businesswoman. All of Europe, the, the, the beginning of the expansion of the kingdom of God that now has affected the United States began with a businesswoman who was a Gentile because God opened her heart. The Bible tells us that not only was Lydia affected, but her whole family heard the message and they also received this new life in Christ. And it says that she and her family were baptized and she immediately invited the disciples into her home. And, and I want to make a little point here about this because one of, the, one of the things that happens in a person that's been truly converted is their heart changes. There, there's something that occurs in a person's heart when they are truly born again is that this overwhelming love for other people begins to develop. It's birthed in them because of Christ. The Spirit of God puts it in there. And we're going to find that repeatedly in our text and people that come to Christ, the very first thing that they do is they want to serve other people. You know, before we came to Christ we would only marginally care about others. That's just the way we're wired. We're very, just by virtue of our fallen nature, very myopic, very self-absorbed, very consumed with our, with our own interests. But as soon as this woman comes to Christ and is baptized, she's empowered by the Spirit of God, and the first thing she wants to do is exercise and exhibit hospitality toward these brothers who shared the Lord. Um, I'm thinking about... Mark 10, 45, when Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You remember when John the Baptist was serving uh, as a forerunner of Christ? What was his famous line? He says, I must decrease and he must increase. That is really the measure of a truly born-again Christian life. When you really see someone who's authentically transformed by God, their life begins to decrease and the purposes of God begin to increase. Their concerns for their own little world begin to decrease and their concerns for others begin to increase. And they begin to serve people. 
They begin to find ways to minister to other people. They begin to, to think of their resources not as an explosion of joy for them alone, but they begin to think of it as how can I be measured in the use of my resources so that I can use what God has given me to be a blessing to other people. And so we find without any training, without any Bible study, without any instruction, the first thing that Lydia does is that she expresses openness and hospitality and generosity to the people of God. Well, this, uh, this place, this river, actually became quite a good fishing place for the disciples. Uh, Lydia and her family were there. There were probably others that were now coming to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible tells us in verse 16 that they went back to this place again several days later and they were met by a slave girl uh, who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, uh, the question is, was she really able to predict the future? Uh, the truth is, is that most of the people who are so-called prophets or uh, so-called psychics or fortune tellers like you see on television or the, the whatever numbers those are, the 909s or whatever, where you can call these psychic hotlines and things. Is that the right number? Whatever it is, you know what I'm talking about. You call these psychic hotlines. I'm just pretending really because I call them all the time. Uh, no. <laughs> I really don't know what the number is. But, uh, but you call these numbers and supposedly these people are going to be able to tell you everything about your life. Now, these guys are charlatans. But there is a demonic influence that allows people to have more than simple uh, guesswork that goes on in their, in their psychic predictions. And this young woman was one of these women. She was actually demon-possessed, giving her the ability to, uh, to predict and foretell things. Now, we know that Satan nor his demons know the future, but they know a lot of information about people. They have, uh, they have a knowledge, they observe just like the angels in heaven do what's happening here on earth. And so they know secret things, they know private things, they know things about us that no one else knows. And with that information fed through this woman by a demon demonic spirit speaking through her, this woman was able to, uh, uh, to say, th say things that people were just astonished by, and the result was is that it earned a great deal of money for her owners. Now, she's probably a young girl, I would imagine probably in her teen years, and uh, she's got these handlers. Uh, she's a slave owned by these, by these people for financial benefit. And interestingly, the text tells us that as the disciples are moving about through through Philippi and teaching and instructing that she is like, you know, a forerunner before them. And she's shouting out two phrases or one phrase with two components. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God. Was she right? Yes, she was. And then she says, these men are telling the way to be saved. Was she right? Isn't that interesting? There are two questions that came to mind as I was studying this. One is rhetorical, and I'll ask that one first <laughs> because it's the question that came to my mind. If a demon was to announce my character and mission in life in Walmart during rush hour, what would he say? Would it be servant of God? Would it be a man telling you the way to be saved? This demon told the truth. I want you to think just for a minute, what would a demon say about you if suddenly he announced your character and your mission? Not what you want it to be or what you'd like it to be or what you project it to be sometime in the future when everything is done and you're retired and have time. But I'm saying right now, what would he say about your character and what would he say about your mission? 
that was a question that really uh, was helpful for me to really consider. And I hope it's helpful for you. But the second thing that came to my mind is why in the world would a demon champion the cause of Christ? Why would a demon say these truthful things and give God airtime and, and promote him? Be, become kind of like an advanced person for the cause of Christ? Well, in order to understand the answer to that question, uh, we need to recognize that Satan uses two primary strategies to undermine the work of God. The first is what I want to talk about right now, which relates to this text. His first and, and preferred strategy is to ally himself with the work of God and then infiltrate and then pervert that work. That's his very, very successful strategy. And in essence, I believe that's what Satan was doing here. This young lady who was known to be demon-possessed, who was known to be uh, a foreteller of things of the future, was now allying herself by, by virtue of the truthful comment she was making about Paul and Silas and, and, and Timothy and Luke. And by doing that, then she was wedging in there with the opportunity in the future to twist and to pervert this true work of God. So in other words, she was hoping to influence the people of Philippi to believe that she somehow had a part in this work of God and could be trusted to be a spokesperson uh, for this work that was, uh, was taking place through Jesus Christ. Now, I find this uh, more and more common even in our own day. You know, it used to be when a Mormon came to your door or a Jehovah's Witness, you could count on an argument about Christianity because, you know, I'd say right away, I need to let you know before you even start here, I'm a Christian. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm not changing my opinion. And, uh, and it's going to be my objective to share Jesus Christ with you as, the, as revealed in the Bible. And before, years ago, it'd be like, well, let's go. You know, it's like, you know, roll up our sleeves and, you know, arm, arm wrestle, you know, uh, about the Bible and about who Jesus Christ was. They don't do that anymore. You know what they do now? As soon as I say, you're, you say it or I say it, I need to let you know I'm a Christian. The first thing out of their mouth is, so are we. We're Christians too. We, we have so much in common. We probably believe many of the same things. Could we come in and talk with you? And for a lot of Christians who aren't ready for that answer, it blows them away and they're like, uh, gee, I didn't know you were Christians. When did this happen, you know? So Jehovah's Witness do that now. Mormons do it. The, the uh, Church of Scientology, all these different groups now are claiming that they too are Christians and are just maybe a little bit more enlightened than, than the average run-of-the-mill Christian. Of course, that's us the average run-of-the-mill guys. So, so Satan wants to infiltrate, and he infiltrates through this young lady and wants to eventually pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the second way that we're going to see happen in this text a little bit later is a full frontal assault through persecution. But Satan's preferred methodology is to come in, make an alliance, infiltrate, and then pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it, it, we're told in the text here that Paul became troubled by this girl's persistence. She was coming day after day and making these announcements. And finally, Paul said, that's it. And of course, this is the same thing that happened to Jesus. You remember when he would walk around, the demons would say, this is the son of the most high God. And for the very same reason, Jesus rebuked those demons because he didn't want an alliance formed between demons and the work of God. And so Paul turned around and addressed this spirit in the name of Jesus and commanded the spirit to come out of her, and he witnessed immediate results. Now, I want to, it's not my purpose to give you a, um, a seminar on, on exorcism here, 
but I do want to take a couple of minutes to talk about it because I think it's important for Christians to have some familiarity with how to deal with demons because they're there. I don't believe in Christian demon possession, but there are people who are actually possessed by demons that we run into on occasion where we need to know how to, how to conduct ourselves and how to free people from that influence. So I'll just mention a couple of quick things here. Number one, he didn't even acknowledge the girl. He simply addressed the demon directly. So that's really important. It's, it, this person that's possessed, sure, they may have had some part in this, maybe invited some sort of cultic or, or demonic presence in their life for power or whatever purposes they had or intended. But, but so often it goes so far beyond what the person expected and now they are actually trapped and enslaved by this demonic presence. And so Paul doesn't even deal with the girl. He goes right to the heart of the matter and he addresses the demon. And the second thing is that he addressed this demon in the authority and in the name of Jesus Christ. He's mentioning the name of Jesus by the power and authority of the risen Savior. He commands this demon to leave this woman. Which brings me to my, to my third point is he didn't negotiate with this demon. He didn't say, you know, gee, you know, this, this is only a 15-year-old girl. Give it up already. You know, find an adult, you know, for goodness sake. You know, this is, this is wrong. This is abusive. He didn't negotiate. He didn't say, you know, gee, could you at least let this girl make her own decision? You know, could you at least leave long enough for her to determine if she wants you in her life anymore? He didn't do any of that. He commanded this demonic presence to leave this woman. And the last thing is that he saw immediate results through this life-changing transformation in this young lady's life. If you want to see a, another example of that uh, modeled by Jesus, you can look in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, where we find another encounter with a demonic presence that's handled virtually identically as Paul handles it here in this text. Well, um, you know, the, the people that were handling this girl, her owners, uh, were certainly motivated purely by self-interest. They cared nothing about this girl. She was little more than a business venture, a source of income, a means to financial success, a potential for profit. In essence, they were cultic pimps uh, prostituting this girl for their own advantage. And so when it became clear to them that this power, this demonic presence that enabled this girl to tell the future or to predict things or to fortune tell and their source of great income was lost. These guys were hopping mad. They were incensed that these Jews would come and disrupt their business practice in Philippi. And so they seized Paul and Silas. And again, we move from the subversion, the alliance, the perversion of the doctrine. Now it's full frontal assault against the disciples by the demonic forces of Satan. And so they go right for the jugular and they get uh, Paul and Silas and drag them before the authorities, before the magistrates, which of course is exactly what Jesus said would take place in Mark 13. Um, and he said to them, by the way, when this happens, when you're brought before the authorities, don't even worry about what to say because it will be given you at that moment by the Spirit of God what you shall say. And so they're accused by these businessmen if you want to call them that, they're, they're kind of uh, really, uh, uh, well, I don't want to get started. I'm, I'm, uh, words are going through my head that probably aren't appropriate on the Sunday morning, but, you know, uh, scum-sucking, things like that. You know, just bad guys, uh, bottom dwellers, you know. Anyway, they, they accuse Paul and Silas of, number one, being Jews, which tells us right away that there is, a, there is an undercurrent of prejudice 
and anti-Semitism in this Roman colony because that's the first thing that gets everybody riled up, just the knowledge that they're Jews. And then he says they're throwing the city in an uproar and advocating customs unlawful for Romans. Do you, do you see how, what a twisting this is? Because what are these guys really upset about? They're upset that somebody, you know, stopped their corrupt business practice. But they present it as somehow that, they, that Paul and Silas are breaking laws of the land, which wasn't true. But the crowd joins in on the attack on Paul and Silas, this mob mentality. And, uh, and as a result, the, the magistrates just, you know, wanting to quell this riot, order Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten. No trial, no lawyer, no opportunity to speak uh, for, their, for their case or their cause, simply to get the, the crowd appeased, they're stripped and beaten. Now, we, you know, we, we don't really have a concept of what this is like in our culture. But the rods that they beat these men with were about an inch thick, about the size of a man's thumb in, in diameter, and usually four to six feet long. These men would be chained or strapped around a boulder or around a, a tree uh, or between two pilings, and they would be beaten uh, by big, tough guys. I mean, it was, you know... They didn't have any little skinny guys doing this work. I mean, these were the big, tough, muscly guys. And they would come with these rods and systematically come down on the backs of these men, on their buttocks, on their thighs, the back of the thighs, and on the back of the calves. And they would do it repeatedly. Now, flogging, uh, according to Jewish law, couldn't happen more than uh, 40 times less one because any more than that, people would die. But in Roman law, with, with uh, beating with rods, there was no limit. And so Paul and Silas were beaten. Now, when you're beaten like this, uh, ribs are broken, uh, vertebrae are crushed, uh, internal organs are damaged, the back of everything on their, on their whole backside, all the way from the back of their shoulders, the top of their shoulders and the back of the head, all the way down to their ankles, would be nothing but ribbons of flesh. I mean, we're not talking just welts, but we're talking about complete destruction of the tissue on the backside of these disciples. And this is what they suffered for simply preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that, that Paul and uh, the disciples experienced this frequently. In fact, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, Paul says that over the course of his ministry, he was beaten with rods three times like this. And every one of those was a life-threatening experience. And if that weren't enough, he was flogged with a cat of nine tails. That had, uh, you know, uh, long leather strips that were on the end of a handle and tied into this leather strip was uh, jagged metal and broken glass and they would beat and rip the flesh off of the back of the people that were being, uh, were being punished or tortured. He went through that five times. So a total of eight near-death experiences for Paul simply for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that weren't enough, they were thrown into prison. In fact, Paul says, you know, this guy is in prison so often. It's like, you know, it's like Motel 6 for him. You know, he's just like, okay, check me in, you know. He's in prison so often that in many of his, his uh, pastoral epistles, he introduces himself and addresses himself as Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus or a prisoner of the Lord. I mean, Paul is not going to be ashamed of that. In fact, he boasts in it and says, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of any jailer. I am the Lord's prisoner. And wherever he wants me, that's where I'll be. Well, the jailer is told to guard Paul and Silas carefully. 
And uh, that's code language for don't let this guy get away. So immediately the jailer puts him in the inner recesses of the dungeon and locks him up in this deep, pitch black, filthy, rat-infested hole where prisoners had to live in their own filth. There's nothing there, no light. They're fed practically nothing. And that's where Paul and Silas are. But it's worse because now they're put in stocks. Now, if any of you have been to like Williamsburg, uh, Virginia, or to, um, to Plymouth, you may have seen stocks before. And, you know, it looks like, you know, nice wood things. Everybody, t- the kids get in there, they put their hands in and their head, you know, and they take a picture and all. That's not the kind of stocks they had in Rome. The kind of stocks they had in Rome were actually meant to not only restrain someone, but to torture simultaneously. And so the stocks they had in Rome made guys do the splits when they put their feet in them. So now, remember, Paul has just been beaten along with Silas to within an inch of their life. They're bleeding profusely. They're in great agony. And now they're in the inner dungeon. It's complete pitch dark, and they're spread wider than I can go. And their feet are in these stocks to produce maximum cramping and discomfort. It's just even hard to imagine the kind of, of pain that these guys were in. And what makes it more astonishing is what happens next. I, I just, I'm astonished. I, I was praying about this. I was thinking, Lord, please don't let me botch this sermon up. This thing is so powerful, just standing alone by itself, the text. But what happens next is just out of the box. I mean, it's just, it's, it's off the chart. It's just almost unimaginable. Because what the text says now that Paul and Silas are doing at midnight when they can't sleep, when they can't rest, when they can't recover, is they're praying. And it says they're worshiping. They're worshiping God. Now, if it had been me, I probably would have maybe been singing too, like, I gotta get out of this place, you know? I mean, I'd be, you know, Lord, look upon me, deliver me, you know, those kind of songs. That's what I'd be singing, not these guys. How do we know that? Because the Greek word is hymneo. It means to celebrate God. That's what hymneo means, where we get our word hymn from. It means to celebrate or extol or honor or worship God. These guys weren't sniveling in a self-pity party, crying out to God and saying, God, how did you let this happen? You know, they're not spiraling into, into depression. They're not questioning God. They're not talking together and saying, Silas, I think this is your fault. No, Paul, this is definitely you. You got us here. I mean, nothing like that. These guys are totally confident that they're in the center of God's will and they're praying and they're worshiping. They're extolling God. They're rejoicing in God. They're praising God. They're honoring God in this incredible black pit of darkness in incredible, excruciating pain. And yet in the blackness of that night, in the middle of the night, they worshiped. You know, the Bible says, um, Psalm 34 in, in verses one through three, It says a powerful verse. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. I memorized that years ago. And as I memorized it, I meditate on it. You know, because as you're memorizing it, you got to go over and over and over. And I thought to myself, I will extol the Lord at all times. I began to really get convicted because I thought, man, I just extol God when things are good. I have a tendency to want to extol God when things are moving in the direction I think is is positive and comfortable and successful. But it doesn't say that. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. That means when things are good and when things are bad, when I'm encouraged and when I'm discouraged, 
when things are, are moving in a, in, a, in a productive, successful direction and when things are failing, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my lips. Why? Because God is worthy of it regardless of what's happening in our life. And God, as we're going to find out, always responds to praise and to worship because it's an act of faith like nothing else is, especially when you're under pressure. I think about Philippians with Paul in, in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. He says the same thing, the same theme in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I want to ask you just a real quick question. What does it take to get you to stop praising God? You know, for the honest truth is, is a lot of us, it's if, it's if we just get up and don't feel good. That's enough. For others, it's like, a, you know, uh, somebody's, you know, driving crazy in front of us or driving too slow or driving too fast or tourists walking across Wailua, you know, to look at the falls. You know, I mean, just the little things. Okay, I'm confessing all my sins now. Okay, so it's, sometimes it doesn't take a lot. You know, I got to get to somebody else's neighborhood. Okay, but some, it doesn't take a lot for us to stop worshiping God. And then when we get the big things, you know, the big challenges in life, we just kind of crumble and fall apart. What does it take to get you to quit worshiping God? Well, Paul went through all of these things, things that we'll never face. And it was normative for him and evidently for Silas as well. How were these guys able to do it? And I want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about that. There's certainly more points I could make on this, but I tried to reduce it to five and I'm going to go through it quickly. It's not in your notes. Number one, they understood that following Christ meant total surrender. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is saying is that when he came to Christ, he understood what the program was about. It's an exchange. We give our life, we get Christ's life. It's no longer our life. We've been bought at a price. So it's not up to us to call the shots. We are under the, the service and under the lordship and the mastering of Jesus Christ. And so he knew right away that it wasn't about what he wanted or his agenda or his program or his dreams or his vision of what life would be. The second thing is that they were mentally prepared to suffer for Christ. Why? Because Jesus in, in John 15, 20 said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. A student is not above his master. And so when they, when they signed on, they realized, hey, this comes with a, pro this is the package. We're gonna suffer. So they were mentally ready for that. The third thing is that they recognized the value of suffering. Paul says in Philippians 1.12, when he's in prison again, 10 years later, in, in, in uh, writing to the Philippian church, but he's in prison in Rome, he says to them, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. And Paul goes off and talks about the people that are coming to Christ, and the guard has come to Christ, and the magistrates are coming to Christ. He says, I just got planted in this whole new arena of, of ministry, and it's in jail, and he's rejoicing over it. Why? because he saw the value and the sovereignty of God in the midst of that suffering to bring about God's eternal purposes. But there's another dimension of this value of suffering that Paul speaks of frequently. We find it in Romans chapter five, verses uh, four and, or three and following. We find it in James chapter one, verses two through four. We find it in 1 Peter chapter five, verse 10. In all these passages, the message is the same over and over and over, is don't be surprised when you suffer as though some strange thing are happening to you. But rejoice 
that you're participating in the sufferings of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the virtue and the, the character qualities and the depth of maturity that develops when a person is under pressure. Not when a person is under pressure and falls apart, but when a person is under pressure and learns to worship and praise and trust and believe in God even before they're delivered. The last thing that I'll mention, or the second to the last, is that they trusted in the sovereignty of God. We always talk about Romans 8.28, but they were living it. All things work together for the good, even jail, even an unjustified beating, even being put in stocks, all things. Do we really believe it? It goes back to, to praise him, extol him in all circumstances. It says, in all things, in all ways, he works everything out for the good of those who love him. And this is the important part, who love him and are called according to his purpose, which gets back to this whole thing of it's not our life anymore. It may not work out according to your plan or my plan, but it will always work out according to God's plan if we allow him to be sovereign in our lives. And the last reason these guys were able to worship under these circumstances is that they had an eternal perspective. Over and over, we're told in the Bible that they considered themselves, the early saints, aliens and strangers on this planet. They knew this wasn't their home. So they weren't living for this time. Going back to the teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is exactly what's happening to Paul in this text. Exactly what Jesus said would happen. And he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And so they had this eternal perspective. Now, the, the truth is, is that this is a challenge for all of us, myself included, because honestly, we don't live this way very often. Many of us don't, you know, we, 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 you know, the idea of what I'm talking about and what the text talks about, that it's not our life anymore and that it's all about the glory of God and that whatever God wants us to put, it, put us through is absolutely fine, that he has complete sovereignty, will do whatever he wants, whenever he says it, no matter what it looks like or how ugly it gets. That's not how most of us live. Most of us are just like, we're in fire alarm mode when things go a little bit left from what we want or what we'd plan or what we'd like. But we have great modeling from these two saints about what the true Christian life is really supposed to look like. And it should challenge us. And it should call us up to a higher, more productive, more fruitful, more surrendered life to Jesus Christ. And I don't want to back away from that and I'm not going to soft, soften it up at all. I, I hope it strikes home and it, and it hits our hearts and we all say, God, forgive us. Forgive us for being so self-absorbed and self-centered and self-occupied. And God, give us lives that live for your kingdom and for your pleasure and for your glory. He'll take care of you. He promises to take care of the food, the clothing, the housing. He wants you to enjoy life. He's given you all these things, it says in Timothy, for your pleasure. So he doesn't want you to be just miserable, but he wants you to live for him and to live in such a way that you can bring him maximum glory and honor. Well, not surprisingly, here Paul and, and Silas are in this dungeon, in this hole in the ground, deep beneath the prison, and they're worshiping and praying, and it says that all the other prisoners were listening. I mean, these guys were used to hearing sounds, torture, screaming, moaning, you know, yelling, banging on walls, threatening, but they probably had never heard guys worshiping in the middle of the night before, and they were intrigued. 
I believe the jailer who uh, oftentimes in that culture, the jailer would live on premises, usually on the second or third floor, some penthouse suite above the suffering. And, and the jailer, I believe, heard as well. But suddenly, suddenly, I love that word, <laughs> real quick, real fast, very unexpectedly, there was this great earthquake. And, and I, I don't believe it was a regional quake. I believe it was a, a specific located quake on that premises because it says it shook the very foundations of the prison. Now, that's not really something you want to happen if you're a prisoner in a, in a, in a prison that's quarried from stone, you know, because the stuff falls in. But it doesn't say anything fell in. It said that this was a very calculated, predicted, controlled quake, because it says the doors flew open, every single one of them, and all the chains and the shackles of every prisoner fell off. Can you believe it? This is the power of God. I want to take just a second and tell you that you may have tried a zillion different, you know, uh, strategies to try to overcome the challenge that you faced in life. The pressure, the strain, the, the, the discouragement, the disappointment, but nothing can match praise. Nothing can match it. Why? Because when we praise God, we're expressing one of the purest, most precious forms of faith and trust in God that exists on the planet. I think about my boys, and uh, I've told you this story before. We, we like to hike up in the mountains, and, and the mountains in Kauai are, are, are pretty treacherous. And there's some places where you'll walk on trails that are only about a foot wide, and it's just drop-offs on both sides. And you've got to get, you know, 40 feet across to the other side. And that's just the way the trails are here, and it's very crumbly. It's not granite. It's lava. So it's just people die here from falls like that. And I was hiking with my boys, and we came to a place like that. And they were little guys. They were, you know... I'm almost embarrassed to tell you. I don't want to tell you because it's child abuse. But anyway, we were, uh, it's called CPS. Anyway, we were walking on this trail and uh, they were just young kids, like four or five, six years old, something like that. They had little backpacks on. Now, they have the ferns going down the side. So I'm thinking, okay, well, they're going to get caught in those ferns at least if anything happens. But I'm walking along and suddenly my boy, you know, in front of me stumbles and he, and he slips and he's got this backpack that's, you know, l suddenly lurches to the side and, and he's moving off, you know, and I'm thinking... Ah! I reach out and I grab his backpack. You know, I don't even have him. I got him by the backpack and he's young enough. I just go, you know, I pick him up and I put him right back on the trail again, you know? And my heart is going, ka-dunk, 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 you know? And he, and he just gets up and does the most remarkable thing. He just runs to the other side and just goes off like nothing happened. I got him to the other side and I said, we need to stop and pray, you know? You almost died. And I said, were you worried? And he said, no, Dad. I knew you were behind me. See where I'm going with this? When my sons do that, it's like, man, I just got to step up big time now. I mean, it just makes me want to, you know, I'm just going to be there every time I can. I want to rescue my kids. I'm going to be on it. You can guarantee it. That's what happens to God's heart. He's the ultimate father. He knows what fatherhood is about more than any of us do. And when we trust him and when we praise him in crisis and we cry out to him, he just goes, ugh. And he just picks us up and puts us right back on. You know, you can, you can tumble down the hill all you want. You can go down. You can be lacerated. You can get caught in trees. You can hit your head on stones if you want, relying on yourself. Or you can simply say, I'm not worried. I know you're with me. You'll see me through. You'll put me back on the path. That faith is what these disciples expressed. I'm really challenging you to become worshipers of God in the midst of your problem. Begin to look at your problems differently 
They are going to be a gateway for the advancement of the kingdom of God, even as we find in this text, because all of these things happen. This earthquake happens. The doors fly open. The prison jailer, the warden, the big cheese, is just blown away. He sees his life flash before his eyes. He goes down, sees the prison doors open, gets his, his sword. It's not this big, you know, it's not like a big samurai sword. It's a particular type of Greek sword that was about two and a half feet long. So he was going to plunge this into his chest and end his own life. Why? Because in Rome, if you were a jailer and lost a prisoner, you would suffer the same fate determined for those prisoners. He knew that Paul and Silas were going to be humiliated, beaten, and then killed. And so he was going to take care of, him, of himself. And then suddenly, out of the darkness of the night, Paul yells out, don't do it. Don't do it. We're all here. And I'm thinking, what? What? They're all there? Why? God just opened the doors and let your, your, your stock, got you out of the stocks and out of the chains. What are you still doing there in the text, you know? Did that ever occur to you? I'm thinking, why are you guys still in the, in, the, in the jail? You know, you've got to do something. He's not going to bring a taxi for you to get out of there. You know, you have some part in this, but all of these guys are still there. And I'm thinking, why? Was it physical fear? Was it emotional shock? I don't believe so. I think there was a spiritual purpose. I think the circumstances said, run for your life. And I think love said, stay. And I think Paul stayed because of this jailer. I think Paul stayed because he knew God was at work. I think Paul was more concerned about the advancement of the kingdom than he was simply about self-preservation. And so the Bible tells us that he stayed and the jailer was so blown away by the events that occurred in these short few minutes that he said, sirs, not, not you criminal, not you reprobate, not number 38261E-5, but he said, sirs, what must I do to have what Whatever's going on in you, whatever you have, I need that. I've been looking for it my whole life and I've not found it. But what you have, I want. How can I be saved? And so Paul gives him a very de brief description of salvation. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. Now, it's important. I want to take just a minute to talk about this because some people actually use this text to say that if a parent is saved, the whole house is saved. That's not what the text is saying. That word believe continues on in that verb form for the rest of the people in that sentence. And also, as we find later, it says their whole house believed and all the household was baptized. So the jailer believed, but when the household came down, the others heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they also had their hearts opened by the Spirit of God and they also believed. And the Bible tells us that this man who was their captor, their jailer, they're one that, uh, that was at least responsible for the inflicting uh, indirectly by giving orders for their beating and putting in stocks and now putting in this inner recess of this dungeon was now washing, personally washing their wounds. And that very hour, the Bible says that this man was baptized. I mean, I, I, I just, I just, I just a new thought came to my mind. Who in their right mind is going to get in water and baptize people when your backside is completely shredded? But Paul baptized this family, the jailer and his entire family. He's serving the man that inflicted such incredible, torturous pain on both himself and on Silas. And it says that this man was filled with joy. It says beyond that, he took them home and served them that very hour, washed their wounds and fed them a meal. Can you believe it? He took him up to the penthouse suite on the third floor, whatever floor it was, 
And, and he invited these bruised and battered men into his home and he fed them. You know, what did we learn about Lydia? One of, the, one of the true markers of the authenticity of a conversion is that somebody begins to be other-centered. This man was evidencing that he was truly born again because immediately upon conversion and baptism, he begins to serve others. I want to ask you, what, is that the mark of your life? You know, you are one of the most serving group of people I've ever met in my life. I can't tell you how privileged I feel to be a part of what God is doing here. I love being your pastor. I feel so humbled by it. I'm, sometimes I think I'm the wrong guy, you know. There's got to be somebody that God can, he's got to be able to do better than this, you know. But for whatever reason, for this time frame, he's, he's allowing me that privilege of being a part of what's happening. But, but you are one of the most serving, generous, kind, uh, outreach-oriented, concerned, loving group of people I've ever been with in my life. And yet I know God is calling us to come out even farther. And he's saying, step out. Become less that I might become greater in and through your life. And that was the mark of this man as well. And he was filled with joy. Well, verse 35 through 36 tell us, as I kind of move through this fairly rapidly, that the magistrates sent their officers off with the order to release Paul and Silas. Now, again, just kind of thinking this through, this means that somewhere in the pre-dawn hours of the night that Paul and Silas, probably under Paul's leadership, said to the jailer, they're all rejoicing. Paul is probably teaching. They're eating. They're resting. They're bandaging up the wounds and everything. And somewhere around pre-dawn hours of maybe 4.35, Paul says, you know, we better get back to ourselves because if we're not there in the morning, you're going to be held responsible for this. Can you believe this? Because that's where they're found when the magistrates order them released, they're back in their cells again. I don't believe it was the jailer that sent them there. I believe it was the love of Christ and the sacrifice of a man that loved people more than he loved himself. And Paul went back. I like what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 23. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul was one of the most sacrificial, serving people in the entire Bible. Of course, unmatched by Jesus Christ. But that's the life. Jesus said, if anyone truly loves someone else, they'll lay their life down for them. And Paul's heart had been filled with such agape love that in the middle of the night, he agreed to be put back in stocks, to go back to a cell, to be imprisoned again in order to save the life of this jailer and once again put himself in complete trust in God. He was protecting the jailer, but I also believe he was protecting the, the new believers in, in Philippi because, of course, if, if uh, Paul and Silas had escaped and run out of town, they would have definitely interrogated all the Christians and persecuted them and probably imprisoned them, probably killed them as well. And so Paul was not only protecting the jailer and the uh, believers, but I believe he was also protecting this fledgling work uh, in Europe. Well, Paul, interestingly, in verse 37 <clears throat> now begins to protest, which seems completely out of character with everything else we've studied. He's submitted himself to God, he's rejoicing, but now he's, he's demanding certain rights. Have you ever wondered why? Ever read this and thought, gee, you know, make up your mind, Paul. What is it you want, you know? You're gonna worship God or you're gonna, you're gonna use the legal system? But he begins to use the legal system and he says, hey, we're not just gonna walk out of this place. We were beaten without a trial. They threw us in prison and they wanna get, want get rid of us. And now Paul is kind of like bold as a lion 
And he's saying, we will not go until they come themselves and escort us out of here and apologize to us. Which seems, boy, kind of arrogant and just out of keeping with the rest of what we've studied. But the truth is, it's not, it's not really that way. Because when, when the magistrates found out that Paul was Roman, Roman law requires that you have to have a trial, you can't be, be beaten, you can't be imprisoned. None of these things can happen without uh, due justice and a, and a proper process. They thought they were Jews and not Romans. But Paul tells them, hey, we're Romans. And you guys, you guys just broke the law. It's what, in essence, Paul had was home video of cops, you know, beating somebody without provocation on the street and kicking their head in and taking their guns and shooting them five, ten, five times, 50 times, whatever, and then walking away and all laughing about it. That's what Paul had on videotape. And these magistrates are just blown away because they're terrified because it's going to mean the end of their career at best and at worst, death for violating a Roman in this manner. But Paul is primarily concerned, again, about the work of God. And that's why he demands these rights. He's not demanding it for himself. He doesn't want to walk out of prison with his tail between his legs and with, with the, uh, the impression in, in the city that they had done something wrong because that would have left a stain on the church and would have left the church in a place of hiding from the get-go. Paul says, I'm not going to let that happen. And he uses the rights afforded to him as a Roman citizen, and he says, you will apologize and you will escort us out of here publicly with your blessing, acknowledging that you were wrong. And the magistrates immediately agree. And the whole purpose for that was that Paul, even in his departure, was making demands because he was concerned about the work of God and about other people's lives. It tells us in the end that they went to Lydia's house again, where I'm sure they were praying, and they encouraged the brothers, again, propping up, tying on those things that we've talked about in weeks previous, and allowing others to be ministered to through their lives, beaten, wounded, swollen men, living the life of love, living a life of sacrifice. I want to ask you in, in closing today, uh, there may be some here today, maybe a few, that as we've gone through this text, you, you think, man, I, I'm like Lydia, I'm a businesswoman or I'm a businessman and, and I'm seeking God, but I've not really come to that place where I felt that I've experienced a transformation in my life. And I would like to know God. I would, I, my heart is open right now. And, and the things that are being said right now this morning, there's something touching your heart and you're saying, I, I would like that. I want that kind of a life. I've tried succeeding. I've tried, you know, the friends, the drugs, the, the, uh, the relationships. I've tried these various things and they haven't satisfied. But my heart right now is open. And if that's the case, we're going to pray for you in a minute. And we want to invite you into the kingdom of God and to experience this transforming, life-changing presence of a forgiven experience in Jesus Christ. But for the rest of us, I guess I have a couple of questions. How are you responding to the challenges in life? Do you, do you now begin to recognize that the things that are happening are not simply about you? But in many ways, God may be orchestrating not the source of it, but allowing these certain things to enter into your life in order to expand and advance his kingdom. But you've been so consumed with the disaster and the crisis itself that you've been, in essence, paralyzed when it comes to prayer and worship, the most powerful weapons that we have in the kingdom of God. Prayer, worship, and the word of God. I want to encourage you this morning that hell cannot stand prayer and hell cannot contend 
with worship. It will drive the demons ballistic and make Satan just go nuts if you're willing to live the kind of life that the disciples lived. And here's the kicker. If you're willing to live this way in praise and thanksgiving and recognition that it's all God's and that you're eternal and that God has got a kingdom waiting for you and that even your suffering has a purpose and all of these spiritual truths that the Bible talks about, what's gonna happen is that God is gonna come to your aid in ways that he wouldn't otherwise. He's just waiting for you to say, I trust you. I praise you. I extol you. I worship you in the midst of this problem. And when you do that, you're like my boy running down the, down the path and I just grab and he's like, why would I be worried? I knew you were there. Why are you worried? God is there. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And even the struggles that you're having today, if you allow him to reign supreme, will serve in ways that you never could have imagined to advance his kingdom and will fill not only your heart with joy, but the hearts of all those that you reach with joy that they've never known before and never can know until they're introduced to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And uh, we're just so glad to be here. And Father, I pray that you take this simple presentation, God, of your word and that you would use it to transform us. God, forgive us for being so self-absorbed and myopic and God, you've been so generous with us and we've often used what you've been so generous with us in to, to just lavish it on ourselves. God, we want to lavish it. We want to give it away. God, may you teach us the principle of John the Baptist and of Paul and, and of Jesus Christ and every saint that's ever walked the face of the earth that we must decrease and you must increase. In the silent, agonizing crises in our lives, Lord, I pray that those silent listeners and watchers around us, our friends and family like those prisoners that heard Paul and Silas would be inspired and would want to come to Christ, the jailer, the people that we would never expect, the hardened, the, the hard-hearted, the, the sinful, the wicked, the pagan, people that we just wrote, want to write off that they would come to Christ. And Father, I pray even this morning that you would touch lives. Holy Spirit, by your power, I pray that you would open hearts. I want to just give you an opportunity as we're still praying to to ask if there's anyone here this morning that's like Lydia or like the jailer or like their family and you would like to receive Christ. You want to be forgiven of your sin. You want to be restored in your friendship with God. You want to know that you have eternal life. You want to be a part of the greatest adventure a man or woman could ever experience walking with God. If you want that this morning, I just want you to raise your hand. So I want to pray for you. Okay, see your hand in the front. Another hand. You've never received Christ, but you would like to this morning. Is there anyone else? Anyone else? Raise it high so I can see. You've never received Christ, but today the Holy Spirit is working and you want to open your heart. He's opening your heart and you want to receive him. Is there anyone else? Father, I pray for those that, receive, uh, that raise their hand this morning as they uh, simply confess and acknowledge their need as they cry out to you and say, Father, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Give me a new start. They believe in Jesus Christ. As Paul said, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Just trusting you, just acknowledging you. 
receiving that gift of eternal life is all it takes. So thank you for these that raise your hand. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you'd send us out with new, a new perspective, a new way of looking at life, the good times, the bad times, the challenges, the joys, and that you would use us to serve the advancement of the kingdom of your great son and your great gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.